Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm okay with living people. I'm okay with dead people. But the transition from life to death is something that takes a lot of getting used to, especially when it's somebody who should be dead who is actually talking to you. I said, the dealer's just phoned me. He thinks he's spoken to one of the drug users. He's going to deal at the Toby Carvery in 10 minutes. We've got to get there before he does. We both saw it at the same time, and this lady just screamed and just dropped to her knees and just went hysterical, into hysterical sobbing. Almost a bit of a thumb off, yeah. So, um, and the next thing I know, everything went black. I said, drop it. We've got to go. I'll explain in the car. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. As a police officer in the Met, Matt Calverley has seen some of the worst crime scenes, crash scenes, and just general horror scenes imaginable. Amongst the stories that he's about to share, also a few light-hearted tales, just to lighten the mood a little bit. But be prepared, this episode contains some graphic content. Before we get into the episode, a massive thank you to AG1, who have been helping to make this podcast happen this year. I take AG1 literally every day before I start the day. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics and whole food sourced ingredients of high quality that give you a major boost in gut health, mood support and energy. AG1 is a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics and whole food sourced nutrients. And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag one dot com forward slash Andy Rowe. Hope you enjoy the episode. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. I just finished reading your book. I don't know how to sum it up because it's funny in bits, but then it's awful and mm. tragic in other bits. Is that just what cop life is? Or In a nutshell, yes. If you could sum up cop life, it's about 90, 95% boredom and 5% sheer terror. A lot of my career was centered around uh, all things death. Um, there were mm. road deaths, mass fatality, that sort of thing. Your first post was to Hammersmith, Fulham, Shepherd's Bush area, which is actually where I live. So I found your book even more interesting because I knew where all your chases were and where you were finding bodies and all that kind of stuff. It just made it all a little bit more real for me. But, I mean, were you just dealing with drunken Kiwis and Aussies most of the time at the Shabu walkabout or what? Yeah, that was a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot, of, particularly at the weekends. Yeah, uh, and they they were nice people. They, they, Kiwis and Aussies, they make, seem to make nice drunks. Can you remember your first beat? You were when you went out and you were walking the beat. How how that went for you? I'd been out of train school for three days. We had a couple of days in the police station, just learning the the actual layout of the station, the procedure, etc. And then I went out on the beat for the first time with the sergeant who was in charge of the training course. Um, and my very first encounter with a member of the public was with a uh, a, a mum walking along pushing a pram with a couple of toddlers in tow. I'll say toddlers. They were probably three to four years old. They were walking towards me, so I thought, let's portray the friendly face of the police. So I said to the two toddlers, I said, uh, you know, hello there, and gave them a big smile. And they both looked at me and just said, bastard pigs. <laughs> and then... 
eyes just absolutely rooted to the spot. The mum just looked at them and breezed past me in a cloud of cigarette smoke, looked at them quite quite proudly, didn't give me a second glance. And the sergeant just, uh, he didn't even stop walking. He said, get used to it, son. Welcome to Shepherd's Bush. And oh that was my, my first encounter with the public. One of the um, first ones that you, one of the first call-outs was a guy called Norman. Can you tell me about that? Yes, uh, Norman, yes. That was, um, he was a very sprightly um, 70-something, 70-year-old, 70-plus, and he decided to go up a ladder onto the roof of his two-storey house uh, at the the western side of Shepherd's Bush, try and fix a couple of loose tiles, ended up falling backwards off the roof, headfirst onto the patio. Obviously, the the result was pretty, was was carnage. Um, He... If I could, am I okay to be graphic at this point, or would you like me to tone it down? Absolutely, go for it. Yeah, yeah, okay. d- it, it, like warts um, and all. Okay, well, with the impact of falling two stories onto his head, his, his his spine had come out of the top of his skull. So it's if you imagine a uh, a cocktail onion being pushed down a cocktail stick, it was that kind of effects. The spine coming out the top of the head, um, and there was uh, blood and skull and brain tissue sliding down the patio doors all over the patio and this has all been witnessed by his uh, his wife who was she he'd been married to for 50 odd years jesus um and this uh, this was my, one of my first sudden deaths I'd, I'd never been too bothered about dealing with death uh, even really messy ones they didn't really bother me that much however this my experience with this with poor old norman exposed uh, a bit of a a gap in the actual service, the support that these victims um, get. Because the ambulance and paramedics turned up, Norman was clearly dead, so it was not a job for them. The undertakers turned up to remove the body, but they only take literally the body. And this left me with uh, Norman's, poor old Norman's widow, and um, a considerable amount of blood, guts, gore, brain tissue on the, um, on the patio. And it turned out it was nobody's job to clean it up. It, strictly speaking, it should have been left to the family. So I thought, well, I'm not having that. So uh, I tucked Mrs. Uh, Norman's widow out of the way in the front room, and I went and got the garden hose out and washed the patio, washed the patio doors, hosed all the blood, brain, etc., off into the flower beds. Um, I'm no gardening expert, but I can't imagine it would have done the done the plants any harm. Just seemed the right thing to do. What I wasn't prepared for was almost a year later to read a, a report in the Hammersmith Gazette about an elderly widow from Shepherd's Bush who'd been tending her garden in the spring and had dug up a set of false teeth. Oh, my God. Uh, which looks suspiciously like her late husband's. And I sat reading this. I went cold when I read this, and I thought, I didn't notice false teeth amongst the mess, but I must have hosed Norman's false teeth into the into the flower beds and left them there. And then she's found them a year later. You made the papers for another incident, didn't you? There's something to do with a, a monkey. <laughs> Yes, um, this was a um, a Sunday morning, quiet Sunday morning in Shepherd's Bush, uh, which are Sunday mornings are popular times for practical jokes when it's you know, boredom sets in. Um, the control room called up myself and my colleague Bob. We were on patrol and said, "So direct us to a house in um, uh, Rylet Crescent, I think, in Shepherd's Bush. Reports of an escaped monkey has climbed through the kitchen window, while the lady occupier is just doing the washing up." Now, we tried repeatedly to reject this call because we were absolutely convinced it was a Sunday morning practical joke. But the control room insisted. So we went along and this, this lady met us and she showed us into the kitchen. And there, lo and behold, was a 
sort of fluorescent green and yellow um, squirrel monkey. It was about the size of a domestic cat with a two-foot-long tail, sat on the kitchen worktop, uh, chomping through a hard-boiled egg that it had helped itself to. I'm a little bit sort of, this is not the everyday thing you see in Shepherd's Bush. They don't teach you this at training school, do they? They don't teach you this at training school. So while, while Bob went outside to make some phone calls to um, RSPCA, uh, London Zoo, anybody else he can think of, most of whom weren't answering the phone because it was Sunday morning, I asked the lady, is, is the monkey tame? And she said, oh, yes, it's clearly domesticated. It's been very friendly. So I cautiously approached it and I held out my hand and it was it was friendly and it was playing with my fingers and it jumped to my hand and ran up my arm and sat on my shoulder which was you know, much to the amusement of this lady's young children and then her husband came in with a big cardboard box and said let's put it in here till we know what to do with it and that's where it all started to go wrong because I thought yeah I'll just take this monkey off my shoulder and put it in this box and this monkey had other ideas and this was a, a big 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 mistake because it just dropped the egg and sank its teeth straight into my thumb almost bit my thumb off so it literally almost bit your thumb off. Almost bit my thumb off, yeah. So, um, and the next thing I know, everything went black, and uh, because I was, there was blood pumping out of my hand, and I woke up to the sound of um, sirens, and I was sprawled across the back seat of the police car with a load of kitchen roll wrapped in my hand, while uh, Bob was screaming through the streets of Shepherd's Bush to get me to hospital. Uh, they got me up to hospital. They um, stuck me full of tetanus injections, sewed my thumb back together. <laughs> And uh, that, that was the end of it, I thought. And then, of course, the same thing happened. A few weeks later, it's in the local Hammersmith Gazette. I've actually put the original press cutting in the middle of the book because people read that story and they'll think, that didn't happen, he's made that up. And then, as a, just to give it some authenticity, I said, no, it really happened, here's the press cutting. The monkey turned out to be a domestic pet from a few doors away. The owner left the cage open. It climbed out, gone garden hopping, and uh, and found this lady's uh, kitchen window open. And, uh, and then it, it went horribly wrong from there, basically. But it took me a year to get full use of the thumb back, but I did, I did get full use back. So you have these kind of incidents that are completely random, and then you get Mr. and Mrs. Fairclough. There was an awful scene. Can you tell me what happened with that? Yeah. Well, it's a very common occurrence um, that there'll be a phone call that says, I'm really, wor- really worried about an elderly neighbour. I haven't seen him for several days. There's post on the mat. The curtains are shut. Sometimes they'll say there's a bad smell, there's flies in the window, etc. All these uh, warning signs that the person's passed away. And these kind of calls are very common. What I had was an extremely uncommon call because it was a, a missing couple, not just one person. Now, common sense would say that if you have a couple and one of you is ill or passes away, then the other one would raise the alarm. So it's very uncommon to get a, a call to a missing couple. So anyway, I went to this house, all the signs were there, host on the map, the curtains were shut. There was a really bad smell through the letterbox. Um, so I managed to gain entry. Knew straight away there was going to be a decomposing body in there because the smell is very distinctive. Uh, and in the front bedroom, I found both Mr. and Mrs. Fairclough in what appeared to be in a very advanced state of decomposition. There was maggots everywhere covering the. They were held in a tight embrace on the bed, uh, and they were you know covered in maggots. So I opened the window, get some ventilation in, just started to uh, go through the various procedures. And then I saw I saw a finger move. And I did a double take, and the lady's, the lady's hand was twitching. So I straight away called an ambulance and then sort of leaned into this shocking mess. And to hear this lady just whisper, I couldn't leave him, that's all she could say. Ambulance arrived quite quickly. We got, we managed to extract her off the bed and get her into the ambulance, get her to the hospital. 
where she was able to say that her husband had, she'd woken up four days previously and found her husband had passed away in the night. She'd been married to him for 68 years and he'd passed away in the night and she was so overcome with grief, she just held him in her arms and just stayed there and stayed there and stayed there for four days and nights. She stayed there unable to move. And although we got her to hospital alive, she lasted less than 24 hours before she died. And the the cause of death was given as severe dehydration. Um, But I firmly believe it was she just died of a broken heart, uh, having spent 68 years married to the love of your life, then watch him literally disintegrate before your eyes. You cannot imagine what that poor lady must have gone through. And 24 hours later, they were they were together again, which I think was probably a blessing. That's so grim and so sad and, like, everything that's bad about dying, like, right there in one little story. Oh, my... Let's lighten it up a little bit. Let's go back to... Let's go back to some fun stuff. In the, in, in the movies, like, cops will often, like, pull cars over and flash their badges and take the car on missions and things like that. You, you did something... You used to do something quite similar... Yes, it was. Uh, I did that quite a lot. It was. Um, I always joined the police with the intention of having some sort of high adrenaline kind of role. And and for your first few years, you're not allowed to drive police cars. So I found it quite frustrating. Walk, always walking a beat and not being close enough to um, major incidents and emergencies. So I, I started commandeering private cars. Um, <laughs> and pretty much every time, the the private motorists they're delighted to help out. They, really? They, yeah, they, they feel they're public spirited. And it can make the difference. You know, I can get to a call in five minutes instead of a half-hour walk. A couple of occasions where it was um, slightly didn't go according to plan. Uh, one was where I, the first vehicle that came along on a Saturday night was a stretch limousine. So I flagged it down. Um, told the driver, I'm trying to get to it. There's been a road traffic accident. It's about a mile away. I wonder if I could, could just catch a lift from you. And the driver sort of said, oh, yes, no worries. We've got plenty of room in the back. Jump in. So I opened the back door of this stretch limo and there was about a dozen very scantily clad young ladies on the way to a hen party. <laughs> so, so, so I um, I thought, I'll, okay, I'll wait for the next car. But they were having none of it. And I literally grabbed hold of my uniform, pulled me into the back of the cab and shut the door. Um, and then the, the driver drove to where I'd asked him to go to. And um, uh, all, there was this, uh, an awful lot of um, innuendo. I mean, I was a you know, 21-year-old young male and surrounded by these scanty clad young ladies of a similar age and there's all these uh, innuendos like shows your truncheon and you know are you the stripper gram and so on and uh eventually we got to the scene of this crash which wasn't nothing major you know it's too it's a bit of a fender bender and some of these young ladies had to get out of the limo before i could get out because of they'd all been shuffling around so they tumbled out and then i came out and quickly put my beat duty helmet back on and then tried to exert an air of authority. It took me quite a while to assure these these two completely bewildered motorists that I was not a strippergram. I was a real police officer. And um, and the other occasion was, was where I, I flagged down a, a, a Mini being driven by a, a lady in her 80s and she was absolutely terrified to be stopped by the police. And I said, um, it's no problem, it's just there's a... Down the Shepherd's Wish Green, there's a bit of a disturbance going on at one of the pubs. I just wonder if you could be so kind as to give me a lift there. And she's like, oh, of course, officer. Yeah, I'm very, very, yeah, no problem. I thought I was in trouble. So I got in this Mini. I'd not even had a chance to put my seatbelt on, and she wheel spun away. Um, <laughs> she was doing approximately about, about 60 miles an hour in a 30 limit through, through London. 
it went through a couple of red lights and she's screaming at me i've always wanted to do this and i'm just gripping the dashboard thinking this was one of my worst ideas ever <laughs> and we got to the scene of this pub fight there was about half a dozen police cars already there so i i got out and we we waded in it was a fairly typical lots of shouting and handbags at 10 paces and everything we cleared the pub a couple of people got arrested and all the police vehicles gradually drifted away and this lady was still sat there in a mini saying where to next <laughs> no, no, you can, you, you've done your public service. You can go now, and and she Lisa. drove off a little, little disappointed not to be my chauffeur for the night. I think there's another story in your book about a, a limo, and it's probably quite timely this time of year. Santa, yeah, that was Christmas Eve, uh, 1997 or 98, I think. Um, I was patrolling um, Harrow with uh, on a night shift with uh, a very young, keen probationary PC who um, always carried around with him a list of hot cars to look for, stolen cars, ones where the driver's disqualified, ones involved in crime, etc. As we're driving down the road in Harrow, a stretch limousine went past us the other way with like fairy lights around the window and the driver dressed as Santa Claus in the, the red suit with the white fur and the Santa hat on. And uh, my uh, my partner, Paul, uh, said, "That's that limo's stolen. It's on the hot list. So I... Uh, Spun round, went behind, got behind this limo, put the blue lights on, and Santa took off. And uh, we we chased Santa for best part of half an hour around uh, Watford, Bushy, Oxy, back into Harrow. Um, the usual sort of first stuff, wrong way through, round one way systems, through red lights, seventy miles an hour in a thirty limit. Desperately trying to shake us off. We were in a a V six Vauxhall Omega. He was never going to lose us. And um, eventually, he went into a roundabout too fast, and. Um, slid off and crashed into some trees. So Paul jumped out of the police car, ran up to the limo to try and drag Santa out and arrest him, at which point Santa managed to get the car back into gear and started to drive off with Paul hanging onto the driver's door. Now, this is a pretty critical situation. There's Cops have been killed doing this before now, hanging onto moving cars. Um, this is also before we were allowed to make what's called tactical contact, which is otherwise known as ramming. Oh, uh, and I thought, well, I'm not prepared to stick to the rules and watch Paul get seriously injured or worse. So I um, floored the accelerator and rammed the limo uh, off the road and pushed it into some uh, some more trees and it stalled again. And Paul managed to drag Santa out and arrest him. And that was, um, apart from damaging two cars, that was the end of the matter. It turned out that Santa was a, a very well-known local criminal. Um, he's had this uh, money-making idea of getting himself a Santa costume breaking into a prestige car showroom, stealing the keys to the limo and uh, driving around London as uh, touting as a, a novelty minicab for hire. He'd done this since about 8 o'clock on Christmas Eve and this was now 2 o'clock on Christmas Day, so 6 hours and he'd made nearly £500. So it was obviously a very lucrative little business for him. He didn't have any change of clothes with him, so he actually went before the magistrates on Boxing Day dressed as Santa Claus <laughs> and and there was remanded into custody at Wormwood Scrubs prison also dressed as Santa Claus and I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see um, in the court and see how, how he actually how the court actually regarded him Somebody's <laughs> sort of nasty policeman come and arrested Santa Claus when you're, when you're chasing someone like that are you um, even like if it's on foot there must be a concern that there might be a weapon on them, right? What other weapons have you had swung at you? Uh, machete was uh, the, the most scary one. 
Um, that was um, a neighbour dispute in Shepherd's Bush one night, two gentlemen arguing over a boundary fence or something. And uh, so I was on solo patrol on foot to walk down the street. I could see sparks coming from this garden wall. It turns out this was a one of the neighbours sharpening a machete. And uh, so I sort of challenged him and he came running straight at me with his machete and started swinging it at me. And it's only the fact that he was, I was in my 20s and quite nimble and he was in his 50s and quite drunk that um, he didn't make contact and I managed to uh, disarm him. But that certainly could have gone very differently. Gosh. Wasn't, didn't there, wasn't there another domestic incident where they had a knife and involving a, a child or something? Yes, that, that was, um, again, a domestic instance where there was a, a mum, dad, a 10-year-old child on the premises. Dad, who was bigger than me, six foot six, built like a rugby player, was holding his, his son by the hair with a carving knife held to his throat. Now, my, I was de- at this point, I was dealing with his partner in the front room, and I suddenly heard this shout go up of knife, and all the other officers who were there quickly got out of the house. I was kind of stuck in the living room because the guy with the knife was between me and the front door. So a bit of a critical situation, and the, a child's life was clearly at risk. He was, this guy was very, very agitated, holding a knife to the child's throat. You kind of start weighing up your options, so we, we call for the necessary backup, which would be like a dog handler, um, armed response, etc. But at the moment, you're there, you're on the scene, and you've, you've got to do something. So this guy backed into the uh, kitchen and at the point I could see a reflection in the kitchen window that he had two more knives in his back pocket. So it's us against three knives. All, bear in mind, all we had at this point was wooden truncheons. We didn't have uh, tasers, we didn't have CS spray, nothing like that. We, we kind of needed some kind of plan, which I didn't have. I was only quite fresh out of training school. One of my colleagues, fortunately, he'd worked his way around into the back garden of the premises, and I could see him in the back garden behind this guy with a knife. I thought, I really hope he's got a good plan, because I, I can't see how we're going to get out of this without, without a lot of blood getting shed. This officer did. He picked up a brick, threw it through the kitchen window, which shattered the kitchen window, covered the suspect in glass, and that was our cue just to charge forward and batten's truncheons raised and, and bring him down. The kid broke free and uh, ran into uh, ran to his out to the to his mum's arms uh, without an injury, fortunately. And uh, the the guy we got him down, handcuffed him. I'd split his head quite badly with a truncheon strike, but this was a guy considerably bigger than me, armed with three knives, and clearly in a very very murderous mood, so I wasn't going to take any chances. All of a sudden, it's all over. He's in handcuffs. The child is safe, and you, then the adrenaline starts sort of wearing off, and you think, I could have just died here. Mm. Two years into my police career, and I could have just died on this in this council house in East Acton. One of those moments that every officer can identify. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Identify with where you think I might not get out of this alive. 
You know, it's quite a, quite a sobering thought. Do you believe bad things happen to bad people? I hope so. The bad things that happen to good people, like you're, the, the police have to deliver that news, don't they? And that's not something you've, you were ever particularly good at, were you? No. I think part of the reason that my career centred around dealing with, um, with death, as in the actual scene of death, uh, whether it be a road death or a terrorist attack or whatever, was because I'm not very good at dealing with the relatives. I, we have in, the, in every police force has family liaison officers who are specially trained to be the link between a death and the actual family. And they are some of the most incredibly talented people I've ever worked with. And it's not something I could do. It's every cop's job. At some point, you have to... Uh, deliver a death message to a family whether that be from a an elderly relative who's who's died after an illness or whether it be somebody who's died unexpectedly in a road crash or a, or a violent crime we all have to do it at some point why were you so bad at it i think i felt uncomfortable um i almost felt that i i was always want to identify the the right person the right next of kin deliver the news and then get the hell out of there which is a very um callous way to think about it but that was my sort of limit one particular incident, which I, I think I've inc- included in the book, was where uh, I was asked to deliver a death message to a young lady whose uh, she'd reported her boyfriend missing. He was suffering from depression and a few other mental health problems, and he'd been missing for a few days. He'd been found in a hotel room in, uh, I think it was in Hampshire, having taken his own life. He'd he'd hung himself. The county passed it back to the Met to go and inform the next of kin, the girlfriend, and it fell to me to do that. So I uh, called at this uh, this flat. She lady answered the door. She was only in her twenties. She knew straight away while I, why I was there, and she was like, "It's about." I think his name was Rick. She said, "He's he's dead, isn't he?" I said, "Yes, I'm afraid so." She burst into tears, and I went in and um, stood there a bit, sort of awkwardly, uh, not knowing. I don't have much of a good sort of uh, small talk in these situations. And then she kind of turned the tables on me a bit. She's like, she suddenly dried the tears up. She said, oh, I'm so sorry for you having to give me this news. It must be terrible for you. Do you want to sit down? Can I get you a cup of tea? And I thought, yeah, well, well, hang on a minute here. Who's, who's the bereaved person here? You know, And she was more concerned about my feelings and the fact that I had to deliver this message to her than she was about the fact she just lost her boyfriend. I'm sure that there'll be psychologists, psychologists who can explain why that's a particular reaction to a bereavement. Mm. Um, but it kind of freaked me out a bit. I was... Prepared for most reactions, but not not that one. What about that one? That lady that her son died. I think it was a drug overdose. Mm, yes, that was. Um, it was an all night party in Harrow. There'd been various narcotic substances peddled around this party. It would appear and in the morning. A lot of these partygoers had emerged from a drink and drug fueled haze, and found that one of them was clearly dead. Uh, on the sofa or behind the sofa so they panicked and called an ambulance the ambulance called the police and I went down there to sort of uh, see what the score was the reason this struck a chord with me was because I identified this um, this deceased male and found out he was born the same day as me so he was 33 years old I think so having established that it was a an accidental drug related death nothing more suspicious than that I uh, had to go and tell his parents. So they lived a few miles away. So I knocked on the door, identified mum and dad, and said, uh, sorry, to, you know, can I come in? And they said, uh, no, <laughs> if you've got something to tell us, tell us here. There's a little bit of hostility there, obviously. Well, I'm put on the spot here. So I delivered the death message on the doorstep. And mum said, uh, oh, well, that's uh, drugs, was it? I said, it would appear to be drug-related, yes. She said, oh, that's pretty sad, I suppose, but boys will be boys. What can you do? Right, is that it? And I said, uh, uh, well, I, yeah, I guess it is. She, okay, bye, and shut the door. 
And I just stood there on the doorstep shaking my head. I've just told you your son is dead. And uh, this probably spoke volumes about the, the relationship or lack of that they probably had with him. But that was, uh, again, another reaction I was completely unprepared for. Makes you feel sorry for the deceased, doesn't it? When that kind of, you understand a little bit more about their background and what might have put them in that position. Oh, yes. I mean, this is how bad you were at this. Like, you, you took a relative on a hunt for a dead body once, didn't you? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, again, um, a, a lady who lived down in Brighton who'd been unable to contact her father, elderly father, who lived in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, for several days, she couldn't contact him, so she'd called the police, and I was dispatched to go and check out this house where this old man lived. But the lady had also taken it upon herself to, to drive up from Brighton, uh, at the time that she phoned her local police, they passed it to the Met. The Met passed it to Shepherds Bush, and they sent me. She was basically she got to the address before I did, so she was sat outside this house. It's in all in darkness. This is about eleven o'clock at night. I spoke to her, and she said, "You know, I'm, I'm really worried about him. I speak on the phone every week. He's not answering the phone. I'm really worried something's happened to him." So I said, "Don't worry. We'll check out the house. We'll." She didn't have keys, which didn't help the situation. So. I went looking around this house with my torch around the front garden, shining through windows, and she was stood by my shoulder. With hindsight, that was a really bad mistake to let her do that because her father had he'd actually died about three weeks previously, Oof. sat in his uh, sat upright in his chair in the front room. Again, this was in summer. There'd been a lot of decomposition to the point where there was not much left of his his skin and his flesh. He's almost a skeleton, which meant if you imagine uh, the skin and everything rotting away from the head there was no eyeballs there's no lips so it's basically a empty eye sockets with a grotesque toothy smile and as i'm scanning through the front room with his torch the torch just shone straight onto his face featureless face staring out the window we both saw it at the same time and this lady just screamed and just dropped to her knees and just went hysterical into hysterical sobbing and i've now got to do the damage limitation because i shouldn't have allowed her to be there there's not a lot that you, you can say at this point you can't exactly say or we'll call an ambulance, he might be fine. It's, it is what it is. There's no way of sugarcoating it. I learned a valuable lesson that night that you go hunting for a body, you do it on your own. You don't take the relatives with you. Seeing, seeing situations where people would decompose is kind of one awful graphic situation, but then also seeing it when it just happened, like that cyclist that was hit by a lorry, that must be another level of horrificness. Yes, that was the one you're referring to. Was uh, that was a, a weekday morning, about about nine a.m. on a, a Tuesday, Wednesday morning. This was just near the BBC TV centre again in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, a fully loaded skip lorry was turning left into an industrial estate just as a cyclist tried to pass up the inside. This is the cause of an awful lot of serious injuries to cyclists in London generally, undertaking large vehicles that are turning. So the cyclist went under the lorry and he went about five or six times around the back axle just spun around the back axle in the time it took the lorry driver to realize what was happening and come to a halt there was bits of the lot the cyclists spread down the road i was not far away i turned up on my own in a in a police car and looked under the under the lorry what i saw was uh, a body with nothing below the waist it was the top half a torso and arms and a head basically there was the pelvis and the legs had been completely shredded and it was face down on the road pretty gruesome but i'm kind of in my element a bit you know i'm quite hardened to this sort of thing so i crawled under the lorry to take a closer look at this what was left of the cyclist at which point the cyclist started talking to me what? and that kind of freaked me out the head lift the head lifted up and the cyclist said to me my arm's hurting my arm's hurting is my arm's hurting i noticed his arm had a big graze on the elbow that was the only injury 
and the yellow, and the greys was touching the tarmac. So I moved his arm so the greys was not touching the tarmac. And the cyclist said, thank you. And then he put his head down and he died. And that was possibly the freakiest. I'm, I'm okay with living people. I'm okay with dead people. But the transition from life to death is something that takes a lot of getting used to, especially when it's somebody who should be dead who is actually talking to you. And again, this, this took me a long time to kind of rationalize in my head. How can somebody who the body is that disrupted, the massive tissue loss, massive blood loss, nothing below the waist, all he's concerned about is a graze on his elbow. And still to this day, never really established what was going on there. Yeah, quite a, quite shut me up, that did. Quite shut me up. Yeah, I bet it did. It must be hard for a cop as well, because like you're... There's one thing going to a call-out where an old person has passed away or where a drug addict's had an mm. overdose or um, there's been a gang stabbing. But uh, when you go to a call-out and you see people that uh just heading out on a normal day and then mm. snap of the fingers they're done like young people yeah. it must you must see that a lot yeah it's um one particular accident which involved a 22 year old his name was dax is his first name this is a a rush hour commute into london down the a40 you can all visualize the scene you've got three fairly heavy lanes of traffic uh, between lanes two and three you've got a steady stream of uh, motorbikes and mopeds filtering through the traffic it's a very common you know way of commuting and it's reasonably acceptable this particular day the these um various bikes were approaching the greenford flyover which is a part of the a40 in london where it just narrows slightly to go over over greenford roundabout some of these motorcyclists had decided not to try and filter over the over the flyover because it was too narrow and um this young lad, Dax, he was on a, a moped, decided he could fit through this gap. So he went between for this gap between a, an articulated lorry and a, a car. And with the tiniest of contact, his handlebar caught the mudguard of the lorry. And that pulled his handlebars to one side, threw him off the moped, and the lorry went over his head. And that was a split-second decision by this guy who thought, I can fit through there. And if he'd been an inch to the right, nobody would be any the wiser. But he just just touched the mudguard of the lorry, and that was him done for. And in a second, his life is snuffed out. And that happens again and again. Like, how often is something like that happening? Like, there must be... Is it like, it, like once a month, or...? When I was working in an accident investigation, we had... Uh, between 90 and 100 fatalities a year in total. But it comes in fits and starts. One autumn, we had uh, 13 deaths in two weeks. Uh, and on one particularly terrible day, there was six deaths in one day. It was a uh, a single fatal, a double fatal, and a triple fatal, all in one day. And that's, uh, you know, you go home at the end of that just thinking the, the world's coming to an end. You know, people are just dying at a rate of knots. How do you decompress after a day like that? Do you just go home and have a beer? Or I've always found it very easy to switch off, to um, disassociate work from off-duty time. I think the only time when I've allowed... A job to get under my skin was a um, fatal accident involving a six-year-old girl on Christmas Day in uh, Southall. And that was um, its one of those cases where you think this is pretty much unsolvable, but I'm going to put everything I can into solving this. Talk me through that, because that's one of your proudest moments. Yeah, that was um, that was actually... Well, the, the accident itself was it's Christmas Day. This uh, young girl, uh, Fatima Mahmoud, was crossing Southall Broadway with her with her mum. Southall Broadway, for those who don't know, is a fairly main road. The outside lane is for traffic and the inside lane is a bus lane. 
That's how the lanes are laid out. And this girl broke free from mum, ran across the road into the bus lane just as a car was driving, racing up the bus lane, undertaking all the stationary traffic in lane two. The car hit uh, hit Fatima, causing very serious injuries, and the driver uh, drove round her and, and drove off and failed to stop. Fatima was rushed to hospital where she, she died on New Year's Day, having never regained consciousness. I was I was the accident investigator assigned to this, and I was absolutely determined that I was going to solve this because this was a, a as, as tragedies go, this was right up there. This felt quite personal to you, didn't it? My daughter at the time was four years old. How would I feel as a bereaved parent if uh, if the police told me that your daughter's been killed in an accident, but we'll never solve it? We won't be able to catch the driver. I thought I wouldn't have that. So within a few hours of the accident, we we had an idea who the driver was because a local guy had reported his car stolen. This was 40 minutes after the crash. And this is a very common tactic when somebody's either involved in anything from getting flashed by a speed camera to being involved in a hit and run. They'll very quickly phone 999 and say, oh, my car's been stolen. It very Mm. rarely is successful. It can land you with seven years in prison for perverting the course of justice. It's not a good idea, never a good idea. So I started investigating this car owner, a guy called Kuran Nathan Anantakumar, a um, Sri Lankan national. And I became quite engrossed in the case, quite convinced at an early stage that he had been the driver involved in this fatal accident. And as the case unfolded, there was a dozen ways I could prove that he was lying to me, but I couldn't prove he was driving. And that's a crucial difference. For example, asked him where he was when he made the 999 call to report his car stolen. And he showed me on a map where he was in a particular shop. Well, I got his phone analysed and it turns out he was at least six miles away. So I know he was lying, but I still couldn't put him in the driving seat. But the breakthrough came when a police officer made a mistake, which really went to my benefit. When the driver had had this car owner had had one of his many visits to a police station to be interviewed, when he was released, he was given all his property back, including his mobile phone. Now, that's a, that's a real no-no. After a fatal accident, the phone is seized and the phone is sent away to the lab for analysis to see what's going on. And that was a mistake that turned out to the, the case pivoted on that mistake because about a month later, I was still working the case late into the night at the office. So I'd received from um, our intelligence department this guy's mobile phone records. and It was sent on an Excel spreadsheet. It showed that he made a phone call at four o'clock in the morning on Boxing Day. And I thought that can't be right because he was still in custody at 4 a.m. on Boxing Day. And I checked the custody record. He'd actually been released seven minutes to four. So I thought, I might be getting somewhere now. He's been released from custody at seven minutes to four in the morning. And within minutes, he's phoning somebody. Now, who's he phoning? I'll send her a subscriber check off to find out who this person is who he's phoning. But before I do that, I thought, I wonder if I already know this guy's number, this mystery number. So I checked the whole case file. And lo and behold, this number belonged to a witness to the accident, a passing van driver. He'd been driving the other way in South or Broadway, said he'd seen the accident, and he gave a vague description of the car and the driver. So I sort of stopped to sort of take stock of it here. I thought, right, just after being released from custody at four o'clock in the morning, this guy's phoned a witness who's somebody somebody who should be a complete stranger to him. So what's going on here? You know, I need to know what's going on. So went home, got a few hours sleep, and then six o'clock the following morning, went to this witness's address and arrested him on the doorstep for perverting the course of justice without any evidence apart from the fact that he'd received a phone call. And he, he rolled over straight away. And he panicked and he said he wasn't a passing van driver at all. He was in the passenger seat of the offending car. We had got the right man. They concocted this story between them to dump the car, report it stolen and not tell anybody. So I said, well, you've got a decision to make, my friend. You can stick with your story and go to prison for perverting the course of justice for as long as seven years. Or you can turn Queen's evidence. You can become my key witness and you can give evidence against the driver. Well, there's clearly no honour amongst thieves because he uh, took the second option quite willingly. That was what got me the authority to charge the guy with causing death by dangerous driving. 
but we were by no means out of the woods because we went to court. He was still denying having me in the driver. He said, no, I don't know who this guy, this witness is. I'd never heard of him before. And we had a full trial. About halfway through the trial, the barrister asked to clear the court, and he clearly, we got rid of the jury, and then he said that his client was prepared to accept he had been the driver at the time of the accident, but he'd done nothing wrong. It was entirely the girl's fault. She shouldn't have run across the road, and his driving was above reproach. So then we had to prove that his driving had been bad, not just because child runs out in front of you. It may not necessarily be your fault. Mm. You know, it's uh, it, even if the child is killed, it could still be the child's fault. That's the harsh truth. And the Crown Prosecution Service will often not prosecute somebody for dangerous driving unless there's a pattern. If it's just a single incident or a moment of madness, they'll say, well, it's careless driving. You can have a fine or a disqualification. It's not dangerous driving. So I went back to the drawing board with looking for evidence, and I downloaded some bus cameras, the CCTV from the bus lane. Clearly showed this offending driver 340 metres before killing the little girl. He deliberately drove through a puddle, splashing a load of pedestrians. And I thought, bingo, there's your pattern of bad driving. So I sent this to the, to the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, and they said, OK, right, well, we're charging with cause of death by dangerous driving because we got the pattern. Eventually, the defence case fell apart a bit. The jury took less than an hour to find him guilty and judged him to prison. Got him. That's so good. That must be so rewarding when you're able to do something like that. Yes, absolutely, completely, yeah. I'm just going to finish this off with a funny story because there was another story involving a a cell phone, and a guy that you called Big Alex. Yes, this was a um, night shift in uh, in West Drayton where I was, um, a, I was a sergeant, super, a patrol sergeant, um, and I this particular night I was in the back of one of the uh, pursuit cars so I could supervise two of my PCs at once. Um, a driver uh, called Paul, who was a, a very experienced, uh, very highly qualified pursuit driver, um, and the operator, Jess, who was um, just out of their probation, extremely keen, very capable officer. And we were just patrolling. And we went into an industrial estate and we happened across what appeared to be a drug deal. Two cars either side of a, a wire fence with some objects being exchanged through the fence. So we, we pounced on the car that was our side of the fence and the other car turned its lights off and disappeared. There was nothing we could do about that. Who we'd stopped was a couple of drug users, heroin addicts, who quite openly admitted they were just been just about to buy some drugs and we'd interrupted them. We thought, right, we need to take them and the car into the police station for a thorough search to make sure they haven't got anything else on them. So Jess and Paul took the two uh, druggies to the to the police station while I drove their car, which is this beat-up old Nissan, I think. So I was driving this certifiable health hazard on wheels to the police station and I heard the, the Nokia ringtone. So I very carefully sort of rummaged in this some takeaway wrappers under the seat and there was a Nokia phone. So I picked it up and number was blocked. So I answered it and this voice said basically what the fuck happened there man? So I thought this is the drug dealer. I put my best shaky voice on and said oh man it was it was the pigs man they really spooked us but we really we really need the gear man we're really clucking. And this guy said all right right calm down listen listen it, what, what happened? He said nothing that we had nothing on us they let us go. Right he said you still want the gear. You know the, the Toby Carvery in Langley be there in 10 minutes. And this, I'm like, so okay, don't, don't let us down. We really need this. He's like, calm down. Just be at the Tobri Carver in 10 minutes. And the call ended. Race back to the police station where Paul and Jess had just about started the searches. I said, drop it. We've got to go. I'll explain in the car. I stuck this Nokia phone in my pocket on my body armour and we jumped in the car. And I said, I said right, Toby Carvery, Langley, quick as you can. This is six miles away from West Drayton. And I think Paul did it in about four and a half minutes or something. I said, the dealer's just phoned me. He thinks he's spoken to one of these drug users. He's going to deal 
at the Toby Carvery in 10 minutes. We've got to get there before he does. All we knew about this car that we'd spooked was we think it was a silver Ford Focus. We didn't see much in the darkness, um, but that's what we thought the drug dealer was using. So he pulled into the car park and within a minute, the silver Ford Focus drove in, saw the police car and tried to sort of very calmly and discreetly drive out again, but we weren't going to let that happen. So we blocked it in. Jess jumped out of the police car and dragged this driver out. And he stra- even though we weren't armed, he straight away put his hands up in the air, which I thought was a bit odd, until I heard a, a loud clang. And as he put his hands up, he tried to throw his drugs away, which were in a plastic container. But all they'd done was hit the big sign that said, Welcome to Toby Carvery, this big metal sign, and drop that down at his feet. <laughs> so um, they grabbed him, handcuffed him, and uh, I looked at this, opened this canister, and it had various racks of crack and heroin and all sorts in it. So that was that was him nicked. Got him. And we handcuffed him, put, it, put him in the car, got him, yeah. And we're driving him back to the police station. Paul said to him, You know, you've, you've not been doing this very long, have you? And he said, Oh, yeah, I have, yeah. I'm just not very good at it yet. So he's quite candid. He was a drug dealer, you know. Anyway, we got back to the police station and we're going to go through the process of charging him with possession of drugs with intent to supply. He said, um, how did you know? How did he catch me? So I picked his phone up and pressed redial and the Nokia ringtone came out of my body armour. I took the phone out and put my best druggy voice on again and said, hello, man. And he said, you bastard, you fucker. Oh, that's satisfying. That must be, that's the fun part of the job, right? Well, that was the fun part of the job, yeah. Yeah, very satisfying. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Where, where can people find out more about you and get hold of your book? The book is called Cops and Horrors. It's available on uh, Amazon, Waterstones, uh, WH Smith, lots of retailers around the world. Great, and we'll put all the links in the show notes to this as well. So if you want to have a look at the description, just scroll down on whatever device you're listening to this on. You'll see all the links that will take you to Matt's Twitter and also to his book as well. And thank you very much for listening. And to everyone who has sent me in recommendations for guests this year, keep them coming. I really appreciate them. And don't forget, if your company or you want to get into podcasting, just chuck me an email, andy at podroproductions.com, and I can try and make it happen for you. We're currently working on an interior and exterior design podcast with Pollyanna Wilkinson and Jojo Barr called The Ins and Outs. Go and check it out. A recruitment podcast with Brook Street called The People First Podcast. It's for people that are looking for jobs. And a podcast on health and well-being, a fun one on dating, and coming soon, a podcast on Southern Hemisphere rugby. Just ping me an email for a free consultation. That's andy at podrowproductions.com. (laughs) 